Might say I'm understudy, might say I'm over the top, but there's like no free water, but soda pop is overstocked. They say amazing grace. So what is the worst thing anyone has ever done to you? Or what is the worst thing you have ever done? Have you forgiven that person? Have you sought forgiveness and been forgiven? I wanted to do an episode on restorative justice to explore how it plays a role and can be an alternative in rehabilitating youth, especially black and brown youth, who have made bad choices, bad decisions, sometimes illegal decisions, which puts them in the system and ruins their lives, the lives of any possible victims, all the victims involved, including family, community. And because there is so much injustice in our justice system, I know that black and brown kids are getting less of a chance to recover from those choices once they are put into the system. I wanted to explore how restorative justice can be a counter to how black and brown kids, especially black boys, are targeted and stigmatized early in the educational system. And I also wanted to learn more about restorative justice on a personal level, because I have carried a harm done to me and my family for a long time that sort of just sits on a shelf in my heart. And recently, when I went to Colorado for a play festival, a lot of feelings came up because my sister Lisa, who I've spoken about on the show before, was killed by a drunk driver in Colorado. And the place has always had a power over me of sorts, knowing that that is where she died. And part of me was actually afraid to go there. Part of me had a real fear, literally, that if I went there, I would die. And I started thinking about the man who killed her, who was 19 years old at the time. Whatever happened to him? What would he have to say to my family now? So I've been curious about what role restorative justice could play in my life today. So I spoke with my friend, Erica Barton, who is a youth advocate and also piloted a restorative justice program in our community. And my hope is that this episode introduces you to restorative justice or builds on the knowledge you may already have and that you consider how it might play a role in your life in a big or small scale. Questions of restorative justice are all over the cultural landscape from reparations for slavery to the desire of many of us for this president to just once acknowledge, own, and apologize for his abhorrent beliefs and behaviors. And overall, in this culture, even when someone thinks they are being apologetic, they don't always seek feedback on how they can truly show that they understand the impact of their actions and ask the people that they harmed how to make amends. Restorative justice is a mindset, ultimately. In the episode, it's pointed out that in other countries, it isn't even called restorative justice. It is simply their justice system. And the system is focused on the victims, what they need, not just the criminal and not just punishment. What a concept, right? So, this episode is in two parts with an additional bonus episode. 
In the first half, some of the things we talk about are what restorative justice is, how it can be used personally in the criminal justice system, education system, and in youth advocacy. And we talk about what role it could play in healing the men best known as the Central Park Five and how it might help my family heal, as well as how it might have played a role in an assault I experienced that I share with my friend. The second half gets into the history of restorative justice, where it was originally born, how to make it your own while honoring the originators. And in the bonus episode, we talk about it on a local level and how community members play an important role in restorative justice. So here's Erica Barton and the first half of our conversation on restorative justice. Hey, Erica. Hi, Tanya. Thank you so much for coming. I'm happy to be here. This is Erica Barton. She is a friend of mine. She is also the mom of one of my older daughter's besties. Mm -hmm. And she's also a rock star because she has a really important job um, in the community that I live in. Um, And I think the type of job that would have a really important role in any community. So if you would please share with my listeners what your job title is, and then can you describe sort of some of the areas that you cover? Sure, of course. Uh, so my exact title for the city of Evanston is youth advocate, but that doesn't really say that much. I like to call myself um, a family counselor or a restorative justice advocate. Um, but what I do under the guise of youth services is free family counseling for anyone in Evanston who has a, ch- a school-age youth who lives within Evanston or goes to an Evanston school. So that gets that funky Skevinston area too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also Which helps. Which is Sk- Skokie and Evanston. It sounds like it's like Skid Row or something. <laughs> For those of it's you It's actually the fancier part of Evanston, <laughs> they say. Yeah. Um, um, so the family counseling um, and then also help to run the restorative justice and community service programs. Yes. So that, that's interesting. So like when you say you offer free counseling, is it fall within um, a a wage range in terms of what Not families make. Really, it's free and open to anyone who lives. Is it here. free to adults? No, just kidding. Uh. Well, we do. I do some parenting work. Uh huh. Um, so actually, yes, technically, as long as you do have a child and what you're working on, wow, that's amazing. Is helpful to your child or family setting. You know, one thing about that that just strikes me. Um, I have found sometimes in terms of like inclusion and equity mm-hmm. that sometimes one of the issues is actually. Not the fact that there aren't resources, that, but that people don't know that there are resources, Definitely. right? So how, um, how does that get disseminated in terms of people knowing, actually, that there's free counseling available? Sure. I just had this conversation with someone today. Really? That, uh, the work that we do is so good, but yeah. we don't have a marketing team or right. public relations. So yes. it is almost like the city's best kept secret. That being said, there's, what, 75,000 people who live here. Okay. I don't know exactly how many families, but it's just me, and I'm part-time. Uh-huh. And then there's another part-time person and an intern. So in a way, do you think, and, and not to as a criticism, but do you think that the way systems are set up, in a way, it's almost as if it's intentionally a best-kept secret? Do you know? Because otherwise, it could be maxed out in terms of... Um, you know, Maybe. demand. I think from time to time, I mean, there was a roundtable article about youth services and what we do a couple years ago. And I do see on Facebook every once in a while um, someone sharing it out there. 
Um, usually the referrals that I get for the most part are from schools. So if school social worker feels oh, like I a see. family can use more help. Oh, so yes. that, that is sort of across the board. As long as the social worker knows that the service is right. available, they'll make those referrals. Um, right now I'm located at the Civic Center. But before last January, our office was located at the Evanston Police Department. Yeah. And so that was a deterrent, I think, probably to Absolutely. some. Absolutely. There's also a, maybe a little bit of a stigma for getting mental health or behavioral health services anywhere. Right, right. So that kind of naturally leads me into starting a conversation about this um, aspect of the restorative justice. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I, I've. I know that in the past, your office was actually in the police station. Yeah. And I remember, actually, uh, I shared with you, I actually wrote a blog post about this, and I know that you were aware of it. And um, long story short, I was in a drugstore um, uh, about a year ago. Yeah. And, you know, I was sexually assaulted. And as soon as I say that, I feel like I need to be like, well, I mean, what I mean is, but essentially, a man exposed himself to me. That's absolutely an assault. Yes. Thank you for saying that. And so, um, so this young man, he was a young man who did this. And I did have a moment, I remember, um, I went through all the sort of stages of like, as a black woman, yeah. how do I call the cops right. on a young black man who's made a mistake, um, albeit one that has impact. Yeah. Um, I did end up calling um, the police from the store when it happened. Um, They took down information. Nothing ever came of it. But Mm -hmm. say something had. Say this young man, they had apprehended him. Mm -hmm. Would you have entered into the picture at some point in terms of the restorative justice process? Or can you talk to me about how that is um, working in our community with young people? Yeah. I remember that blog. And what I took from it, among a lot of other really important things was that we you still have to trust your intuition. Yes. And yes. That's, that's really important. I think we forget. Yeah. We're clouded with all, so many other things. Um, where I would step in. So things have changed, actually, in, in restorative justice in Evanston. It's gained so much more popularity. When I first started doing this in 2006, nobody knew what it was about, uh-huh. and nobody really wanted to have anything to do with it. <laughs> so I'm just so happy that people want to talk about it now. Yeah. It's really exciting. Yeah. Uh, one of the limitations of restorative justice, not just in Evanston, but actually in uh, the United States, is that by and large, it's for youth only. Okay. So if that person um, in the store was 18 years old, he would be considered an adult and would not be eligible for the wow. restorative justice program. Oh, that is so interesting. There are certain instances or pockets um, in Illinois and all over uh, where we almost call it like transformative justice when really big things happen and we're able to have restorative conversations about it. But the, the day-to-day, you know, quote-unquote programs are for 17-year-olds and younger. If you go over to Europe, Australia, New Zealand, they don't call it restorative justice. That's just their justice system. That they want to bring victims and perpetrators and people who cause harm together and resolve it. That's like we're so we're deep. loads and loads behind. We're behind. Yeah, we're behind. We could say though, just for the sake of argument, and yeah. we don't know that that person maybe was sixteen or seventeen years old. Yeah, he looked like a young guy. Yeah, sure. So him being this young guy, mm-hmm. and say he had been apprehended. Mm-hmm. Um, at is there a point in that? process where you might come in and try to 
go the restorative justice route? Or There's a lot of different factors that come into play. One would be um, the victim, what you as the victim, the person who was harmed, would want to see. So I think an officer will automatically ask if you want to press charges. Right. So if you do, they might go that route. If you don't, um, they might go restorative justice. Uh, our juvenile officers, who I work really closely with, are well-trained and well-versed in it. Um, sometimes you have to ask specifically that you want restorative practices used on your case. Oh, wow. Other times an officer might say this might be a good idea for mediation or victim offender mediation. So that's really interesting. So it's something that's kind of an interesting thing to bookmark, just honestly, Mm -hmm. that you as a victim can have that mindset and ask for it. Although as a victim, that very possibly would not be the mindset you are in. Possibly not. Very much not. But it's important to know that you do have that you can ask for what you need, even if you don't want restorative practices, that you, you still have a voice. Yeah. So, so and also, um, for clarity, is the option for restorative justice only if charges aren't pressed? So it's not folded into the process of someone being charged. It's both and. So originally in Evanston, it's different in different places, but restorative justice was folded into an alternative to um, a court referral. So not necessarily an alternative to arrest, but a young person maybe would have an arrest, but it would be a, a, a station adjustment. And in lieu of the station adjustment, that young person would be able to do either community service or restorative justice. And oftentimes, especially now, the juvenile officers will refer it to us in youth services And then we could determine if it's going to be appropriate to do restorative justice or something else, because sometimes it's not appropriate. Okay, so uh, what would, so in terms of what happened to me, which Mm -hmm. was he exposes himself. I, um, you know, you know, this was one of those situations where you're like, gosh, I went, if you ever wonder what you would do in a situation, I found out because I went like full on like badass, I got to (laughs) say. You are badass. I thank you. (laughs) are you and the funny thing is is like I like um I use like my stage voice and I was like security security and I just started bounding across the store towards the register like it was you know and he ran right yeah um so anyways uh you wonder what you'll do in those situations and then when you get it answered you're like oh that's uh well there you go is that what you thought uh, uh no i don't uh, know if i ever thought i no. just you don't necessarily think about there's it there's that you Although know I animalistic do, yes, fight or flight response the fight or, flight. or freeze which I, I think is probably yes, what i would do freeze i yeah. i think that i might have thought that i would have froze but i did actually the exact opposite um, just in general, though, like if I said I want to go the restorative justice route, what would happen then okay. with this young man? Okay, so, um, so well, the second part of what I was saying is that sometimes it comes as a result. There's an arrest, but an alternative to going to court would be you do this program and then you don't go to, then you don't have to go to court. Right. More recently, in the last couple of years, it's been revised, um, in a very exciting way that now we can do restorative justice as an alternative to arrest or even any kind of police interaction. Wow. That doesn't happen in every level. Something I think pretty severe about what happened to you would probably warrant that police call. But sometimes there's things that happen in schools and right. families and also school officials say, well, we don't really think we need, we don't want to make a police report. We don't want this to be on someone's record. Can we do this before even getting the police involved? And oftentimes actually the school resource officer facilitates it, but it's without a police report. It's without any formal arrest. and that. 
tends to be the better way to do it. Um, it loses a little bit of accountability or sometimes like the motivation for then the referred person to, to go through with it. Um, but we best case scenario is that the person who caused the harm wants to be there, wants to take ownership, and the person who was harmed wants to be there and wants to facilitate uh, reintegration into the community. And, and So safety. then what happens is that we, do you arrange a meeting between the victim and the perpetrator? And... First, we'll get a referral, whether it's formal or informal, and that's from either the um, schools, the school resource officers, the juvenile officers, or in the more severe cases, sometimes cases do get sent to juvenile court, but we have a really good relationship with our uh, juvenile state's attorney, and she's tra- she, watched, she moved on, but there's new ones, and they're trained in restorative practices, so if they know that this case, even though it's severe, would be, would be beneficial, we'll divert it back. So they'll screen it out of court just to do restorative justice. Mm-hmm. So one of those different ways um, we'll get those referrals. We'll also get calls from neighbors, block clubs, saying we're having an issue. Can you work this out restoratively? So that's outside of the police department, generally yeah. speaking. And so yeah. that's been really neat and interesting to be able to help facilitate. So then you show up to this group. You've assessed or kind of um, debriefed with whoever reached out to you what the issue is and then like what would a meeting look like or what would um again going back to this young man like if it were us first thing i would do is get um referral with some information from whoever it is uh and the first thing i would then would do is meet with that um referred person and their support people family okay uh to find out what was this all about and what were you thinking what were you feeling at the time what did you think would happen um but so starting some preparation. So I don't go into a, a, a peace circle is what we call them. I don't go in a circle. We don't go in a circle cold because we have to um, fights and batteries, uh, assaults, mob action. So there's people in big time conflict. So we want to meet with each side separately to find out a little bit of the backstory about what's been happening. Um, but before I would safely bring anyone into circle, I would check with the referred person. Um, are, they, are they acknowledging that they caused harm? Mm-hmm. Yes, that was me. I did it. As opposed to, nope, it must have been a mistaken identity. That wasn't right. me. Um, and then secondly, are they showing any kind of um, remorse or feelings about what they did? So then if, say, okay, so let's go with both options. Mm-hmm. If they do show remorse, mm-hmm. then they're a candidate for it. If they don't, would you come back to me and recommend this kid does not seem remorseful, so it wouldn't work? No. Okay. It's always good to do restorative justice in any different in any scenario. The what I'm being careful for is for the, the victim, the, the person yeah. who was originally harmed. We don't wanna bring people into circle and then re victimize the victim by having them right. deny that this happened to you or it wasn't right. me when you know it was him or feel very strongly it was. So then how does that work then if he's in denial but you're still gonna bring us together? What what would happen? I wouldn't bring you together oh. unless those two things happen. Yes. Similarly, okay. sometimes people who are victimized are not in a good place, an appropriate place to come and meet with the person or harm them. Right. Sometimes it takes a long preparation period to make sure that everybody's ready. If I do come to a conclusion that maybe we're not going to be ready indefinitely, what I would do, um, there are a couple different options, actually, but I would go to the victim. This is all victim-centered and really victim-run. This is the alternative to the to the regular criminal justice system, traditionally, where victims don't get have a voice, right. where you don't get to ask questions, right. where you don't have a say about what's going to happen in uh-huh. terms of accountability. So this all goes back to the safety of the victim. And that's where it was started, you know, in the, in the justice system, really, to my, being mindful of victim rights. Um, so I would probably come back to you and say, it doesn't seem like it's going to be appropriate to do a circle. 
However, how would you feel about submitting um, like a letter or writing down how you um, feel about what happened and how you've been impacted and just tell your story. Mm -hmm. And that would be read at his circle. And so the circle would still take place as long as they were showed up, um, as long as they were willing to at least do that. With the um, referred person, their support people or family, um, two facilitators, two trained restorative justice facilitators, and a community member. Ooh. So uh-huh. now the thing about, um, you, you've mentioned a couple of times the notion that they might not show up, mm-hmm. which um, in terms of that accountability, and if it is being used as the alternative to the system, mm-hmm. they're still not required? Well, if it is after an arrest where you could either go to court or you could do this restorative yeah. justice program, um, they can say, send me to court. I'm going to try my luck with a judge. Okay. Um, so there you have it. Um, but I also say if you don't follow through, that means in coming to their preparation meetings, attending the circle, and then following through on their repair agreement, um, then it could result in still a referral to court or a formal arrest. Okay. We never want to do that. Right. But it could. So they're not, in other words, there isn't some risk that like, okay, he's blowing off restorative justice and somehow now isn't dealing within the system either and kind of like gets away with it somehow. Like there's accountability either by following all the way through with the restorative justice or court. Theoretically speaking, it's so yeah. interesting because the way that the juvenile justice system is set up, um, they, there's a lot of chances for young people to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And that's not really widely talked about anymore because we're looking at so much juvenile justice reform that we think like all all young kids, at least in Evanston, when a young person comes in contact with the law, there's usually several and multiple chances that they get to make this mistake before something really happens to them, whether it's a formal arrest or a petition to court or signing up. Is that true for all children, white children and black children and children of color? Ah, thank y'all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because that sounds great. And mm-hmm. I'm like, right on. Great. Mm-hmm. Multiple chances. Mm-hmm. But it makes me very curious. Not for all. Yeah. Not for all. Not for all. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah Sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. what happens, though, is that um, someone doesn't follow through in, their, in the program, whether it's community service or restorative justice, and then we'd be responsible for sending that case back to the officers to review for court. And sometimes they'll say, well, there's not enough evidence. Or it's not severe enough for the judge to see it. Or sometimes it gets all the way to the judge and the judge just drops it just because. So there are sometimes young people get the message like, I could do some of this stuff and get away with it. That's on purpose because of the flaws in the system and because we know that children's brains aren't developed till they're about 26 mm-hmm. or 42. It's hard to say, mm-hmm. you know, like that we're mm-hmm. children for so long that there, there's purposeful room and space. So sometimes, um, you know, I have had victims who've been pretty upset, like, not, but nothing happened. And I'll say, well, that's sometimes how that system works. But Interesting. Yeah. So it kind of makes me um, wonder, and I don't know if you can speak to this. Um, it is something that's been current in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when you said the thing about how um, kids' brains um, aren't developed, mm-hmm. the, the Central Park Five case, where the five young black men were falsely convicted of rape. Just yes, yes, rec- yes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so um, then after they served their entire sentences, um, they were exonerated. Mm-hmm. The person who did rape the woman admitted it. Yeah. There was DNA. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So partly I was wondering about them in the sense of what role at this point restorative justice could play because now 
cut to now where this Netflix series has come out highlighting their case. There's been a lot of outrage. Trump has been brought into this because back then Trump had um, uh, had four major uh, newspapers print an ad where he was calling for the death penalty right. for these young men before yeah. they were ever even um, yes. tried. Yes. Um, also, there's that. There's yeah. the fact that the prosecutor and um, the woman who sort of really pushed everybody to kind of make these kids mm-hmm. the guilty ones, they're all doubling down. Mm-hmm. Even the victim herself has doubled down and said, well, the cops thought they were right. doing the right thing. All of that. So I was curious about how would restorative justice be of use now, but I guess in a way it wouldn't because everybody's doubling down. Like Trump recently doubled down saying, right. well, there's two sides. So that would, they would not be candidates. Like I was like, what is a, a way for these men who served this prison sentence to find some healing through restorative justice? But I guess ultimately they can't because nobody who did them harm yeah. is willing because while we're looking, so yes, they are the victims. Yes. Society in yeah. general were the offenders. Right. And so we need to take ownership. I think it'd be really hard for a facilitator with all these people and the president doubling down to say we're going to get together. Um, sometimes, I'm not saying that I would do this, but sometimes you do have to take a risk if you know something's in there. Like, I just wonder about this the victim of the rape. Mm-hmm. If she would be willing to just sit down and hear their story, and then see how they've been impacted. Right. Sometimes it's the power of the connection, and you have to do it just right. You can't just throw them together, like I said. Um, And there has to be some sort of building of trust before having the conversation. But I've seen it. Building of trust is actually with the facilitator, though, right? Like shoring up. There's the there's the preparation beforehand. Right. What would you say if they said this? What yeah, would you say yeah, if they said it. that? And then there's a, a set of preparation questions that that every I think facilitator uses um, to try to just facilitate the conversation, not in terms of what law was broken and how are we going to punish people, but how was your relationship affected by this? Your relationship with the victim, your relationship with your I mean, it's all of restorative justice in terms of looking at harms instead of laws broken is like um, Mm. a metaphor to a pond and you throw a a stone in the pond and Mm -hmm. there's the initial plop. Yeah. For these kids, the plop was what a giant one. Uh, Gross miscarriage of justice. Yes. (laughs) And then some people just stop at that. Oh, well, they'll get over it. Mm. Maybe they'll sue and get some money. Maybe Mm -hmm. they'll, you know, but they're not the only ones who are impacted by this. So the ripples just go on and on and on. Their parents, their friends, siblings, um, girlfriends, um, not to mention the the victim of the rape and how she felt, how she's feeling, how she feels now, knowing that she did that she now harmed someone else and possibly ruined other people's lives and her life. And you know what's strange, though, is technically she didn't because she doesn't have any memory. Right. So really, Mm. it's the prosecutors and the police who forced these confessions out of these young men and just targeted them and decided they were going to be the ones. Because New York was up in arms. And she really had nothing to say about it. Really, the harm she has done was um, in her response to the evidence that they didn't do it. Exactly. Exactly. And willingly still putting herself in a place to believe that perhaps possibly they did. That's where her sort of, you know. This is a, a perfect world kind of situation, but if we were able to get all of those people safely into the room, minus some of the bigger, you know, but 
the people who are immediately involved, and then to hear these young people's stories about who they are and who they were before mm. they had to go to prison and before they yeah. were wrongfully convicted. That, again, this is one of those transformative things. This right. is not something that I necessarily do, but it's something I've seen the power of restorative justice. I've seen, I've read, you know, that things like this can happen yeah. on a very, very, very small smaller scale. Yeah. Um, I've had similar instances um, in my office in circles. Mm-hmm. Now, very, very small scale, but I don't know if I've shared with you the nail polish story. Everyone no. I talk to you now knows no. the nail polish story. This was <laughs> early on in the restorative career, so it was probably like 2008 or so, and um, I had a case. It was um, a retail theft, mm-hmm. and it was a young teenager who stole nail polish from Urban Outfitters. And so I, we thought, oh, and I was referred to do restorative justice. Mm-hmm. So I met with, um, first I met with her and her family to find out, well, what's going on? Sometimes there's, there's factors contributing to why people make the decisions they make yeah. all the time. So sometimes I could provide some help or even counseling or offer services there. And then to prep her for what it'd be like to sit with the victim. And so she's sitting there I'm like, what do you mean? What victim? <laughs> She's like, it's Urban Outfitters. I stole from the man. And it was nail polish. It was $3.99. Like, you all are doing too much. And I was sort of convinced. I was like, yeah, you know, it was Urban Outfitters. Oh, that's so funny. And she was 14, and Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking. I wanted it. I grabbed it. I didn't have, you know, whatever the other reasons were. But there were no other significant things going on in her life. Would you be open to meeting with, with someone from Urban Outfitters? Okay, fine, because we don't want to go to court. Mm-hmm. You know, there is that like fear of punishment, which yeah. unfortunately, you know, can be motivating. So then I, I called and talked to the loss prevention officer from Urban Outfitters and he was kind of awesome, but he agreed to come in. Management let him take time off, come to the police department at the time for three hours, because sometimes circles take that long. Yeah. We I spend bet. a lot of time doing kind of icebreaker get to know you sort of yeah. sorts of questions. Anyway, what come to, came to happen after we did all those things, getting to know each other, sort of feeling comfortable in the room. Um, was that we started with the victim, so the loss prevention guy. And he said, you know, the night that you took the nail polish, I was supposed to leave work early to go to my daughter's soccer game. But since um, I had to sit with you and wait for the police to come, and then we had to wait for your mom to come, I missed my daughter's soccer game, and she was so upset and so angry with me. And on top of that, um, my wife and I are, are separated, and we're going through a divorce. And she used my not showing up for the <gasps> soccer game to file for and then ultimately got full custody of the children. Holy crap. So it destroyed his marriage. It destroyed his relationship with his children. And she did exactly what you're doing right now. Her jaw <laughs> fell on the floor. My mouth is literally wide open right now. Who would have ever known? Who would have ever known? that? that and she said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know. Holy cow. And, you know. We're in, in restored practice, you don't have to say you're sorry because mm. usually apologies are empty. But when it comes spontaneous like that, especially from teenagers, it, it came from the heart. Wow. And he said, how could you have known? And you, you never would have known unless you were here sitting with me eating pizza. Holy cow. Talking about how I was impacted. We don't often ask those questions. Right. And so the scenario you brought up is much more complicated because now... Well, it happens a lot, too. That the is. victim's the offender, and the offender's the right, victim. Right, and, right. and that actually is true a lot. Yeah. Um, but to have this, um, the rape survivor hear their stories, yeah. whatever they are, and this is how my, my life was on this trajectory, and now it's here. And whether she is culpable or is admitting how culpable she is, 
it might still have impact. There's also peace circles and restorative things happening with um, perpetrators or offenders are already in prison. Mm. And, but there, people right. still want to not make amends or say sorry, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have, have a face-to-face. Have just a witness. Like, I'm, I'm still here. You yeah, know, I mean. This is a thing. I, I'm still here. Yeah. I'm still hurt. You're still hurt. Yeah. Now we're all hurt. There's it's, our justice system. That's, you know? that's what, um, you know, I had shared uh, somewhat recently. Um, I had seen an article about a woman who met with a man who um, killed her sibling. He was drunk, killed her sibling. Mm. And I shared it on Tanya's Take Facebook page. And I shared the story about my sister who was killed by a drunk driver. I saw that as well. Yeah. Thank you. That. Yeah. Um, and this was over 25 years ago, I think now. Mm. Um, so the deal with that kid who did it at the time, who was 19 and drunk, um, he did go to, to I don't, I, we don't really know actually what ended up happening because my parents weren't the type to be like really litigious and go after him and but, you know, he went through a system, mm-hmm. and we did at one point get a letter from him, mm-hmm. but a very sort of um, apology, non-apology letter, right? which made it worse. Yeah. And I always have wondered about what became of him. Um, I, I guess in a way would feel compelled if the opportunity arose to maybe let him know how it impacted. Yeah. But I have to say, <laughs> I mean, like you said, it's interesting because I guess the end game for restorative justice isn't necessarily apology or forgiveness. It's repairing of relationships. And, I mean, you don't know who this person is, yeah. but your lives are now connected and your stories are connected. Right. So when you say repairing, then what do you mean? You don't mean repairing in terms of resolution or, you know, because, um, I mean, the only thing about the relationship that exists is the fact that he killed my sister, right? Mm-hmm. So... Tell me what you mean by um, repairing that. Yeah, it can mean different things to different people, yes. obviously. When I say repair agreement for some of the smaller cases, it's, well, it's what I guess it would be for, for you or your situation as well, um, repairing relationships, but specifically um, repairing the harm that was caused to you and your family mm-hmm. and not just deci- having the lawyers decide that X number of years is now going to repair you because that exactly. obviously isn't right. real. Right. So finding out from you what you would need. Yeah. yeah and yeah, maybe yeah. it's nothing. Maybe, it, I mean, it could be anything, right? So repairing the harm that was caused to you and your family, repairing the harm that was um, caused to his family mm-hmm. and himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third harm is Community, community safety, repairing the harm that was caused in the community. That's interesting because hearing you say that, like if I were to sort of craft what I would want from him, it would be another version of his letter, Mm -hmm. you know, a letter that told me like, what did you do with your life? Yeah. What do you think of the letter you wrote? What might you say differently? You know, that sort of thing. And so it's, I, I can, I really hear what you're saying now in terms of, it's almost like you're repairing the, the not the relationship to the person, but the relationship to the harm yes. that they cause. You're, you're, the ripple. The ripple. And you're finding some control of it by um, being able to express to that person what role they can play in helping you. Before they can repair, they have to um, 
acknowledge and witness the harm in the first place. Yeah. And he probably has not done he that. He has no idea. A lot of um, referred people, referred young people who I see, um, when I first ask, um, so, okay, who was impacted by, by what happened, by what you did? Me. Yes. I got punished. I got grounded. Uh-huh. I, I got, I'm on social probation at school. These are all real things. Yes. And yes. so there does have to be a little bit of like, okay, let's examine that or that, that is real. And sometimes that has to be acknowledged first to be able to move on to like, okay, who else? But the who else is sort of this like out there kind of person. So so think about it. So people who've caused harm now considering themselves victims because those people in court sent me to jail. They're Mm -hmm, the bad guys. mm -hmm, I'm the good guys. mm -hmm. Like what? Um, It gets really mixed up like that. It is the personal connection or lack of connection. Seeing you, you are a person, you are a human. And that this situation for sure, but that every decision we make, there is a human being on the end of it, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't seem that way. Right. There was a case I had um, more recently where um, two kids, they're always good kids, good young kids, they decided they were bored one day, so they took a um, two-liter bottle and went to the top of a parking oh, garage and dropped it. Uh, well, yeah. I was just playing. Right. I, you know, I didn't intend to hurt anyone, but they hurt someone, um, not physically, luckily, yeah. but emotionally really, really traumatize somebody. Yes. But people don't think, just like the nail polish, like yeah. I, there was no harm there. I, in my mind, well, I guess I have to preface this by, again, saying like I can't even imagine what it was like for your family mm-hmm. to, to, to have this loss yeah. Um, yeah. and the feelings that, that you carry um, that, that needs to be acknowledged. Right. Not, not just by the person who did it, but I feel like I need to acknowledge it. Oh, thank you. What if you, you had agreed to or would agree to sit with him and tell him everything about your sister? Right. That she was real. It's not just what he took away or the mistake he made, because that's what he's focusing on, but that she had potential. She had a life. She had friends. She had siblings. She was all these things. And she kind of gets dwindled down into what happened to her. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and loses the realness. And that yeah. is a secondary that's a, a secondary loss for you guys. Yeah, and to, it's interesting just in terms of, like, I have never, I mean, you know, he was a 19-year-old kid who got drunk the day before graduation. Mm-hmm. And I've really, quite honestly, never given that a moment of empathy, really, until right Nor now. Nor is it necessary, no, 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 but, really. But really, but. until right now. Like, even in this, because it's, I've reframed the thinking in terms of, like, there's two ends of it that you're, as the victim revealing yourself as a human, but also there has to be an aspect of the reflection of yeah. seeing that they were human too. It makes it a little bit, it's more heart-wrenching. Ugh. It's more heart-wrenching. I mean, sometimes it's easier to say just let them, I mean, I think the initial reaction when you've been harmed or violated is like, send them away for life. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I get it. Yeah. It's just that when healing doesn't come after X number of, days, months, mm-hmm, and years, it's mm-hmm. like, okay, what's, what's missing? What's missing? Because that doesn't make me feel better. That is really interesting. That makes me think of things in a way I never have. Because, you know, I've always been like, you know, he killed my sister. And, um, you know, I've had people reflect back to me, you know, well, it was an accident. And in my mind, I'm like, he murdered my sister, you know? Um, and have always had a sort of knee-jerk reaction when somebody has been trying to, like, counter that with, like, right. well, but, you know. Um, but, again, now it's just sort of opening up this thing because it, it was an accident and he was a kid. But that's all I'm going to do for today. But, um. Maybe it'll be all right. Maybe you're all wrong. Amazing grace. Thank you, Lord.